Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. All right, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to turn with me. We're going to look at a primary passage of Scripture we'll look at in a few moments uh, would come from Galatians 5. So if you want to go ahead and find that, you're welcome to. We will read that in a few moments. But let me talk through a couple of kind of introductory things related to our talk tonight. The first is that we are going to finish uh, our study in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit tonight. Tonight will be the last, last time we work through this doctrine, at least for a while. And we're going to pick up next week in the doctrine of salvation. Uh, that would be the doctrine of soteriology, to use the technical term. And we'll be in the doctrine of soteriology for a while. It's going to be at least eight to ten weeks. It might be a few weeks longer. Uh, so we're going to walk through the beginning stages of salvation, each of the aspects of salvation. We'll look at the order of salvation. We'll look at the extent of salvation. We're going to deal with subjects like God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Uh, we're going to deal with the topic of or the, 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 the issue of Calvinism and Arminianism. We'll walk through different aspects of how salvation has been understood how it's been treated, how it's been uh, dealt with in terms of church life and theology uh, over the course of the next, uh, what, 8 to 12 weeks on Wednesday night. So that's kind of where we're headed. What I will do my best to do is next week when we meet, I'll have kind of an outline for you. So on the handout, it'll list what I anticipate we'll cover week by week. Now, anticipate we'll cover week by week. I had grand ambitions the other week to cover much more than we were able to cover in the time. So it might, might not fall, follow exactly uh, week, week for week what we'll cover in the Doctrine of Salvation, but we'll do our best to work through that over the next several weeks. So that's, uh, that's what we're, where we're headed. Uh, what I'd like to do tonight is kind of follow up on something that's not in your notes, but that I was thinking about that I, I probably should have explained. So, for the last two weeks, we have dealt with kind of the supernatural aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit. We looked two weeks ago at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how that took place, takes place at salvation, and then the uniqueness of that with regard to Pentecost, and then last week we dealt specifically with the sign gifts or speaking in tongues. And, and one question I didn't really answer for you and one that, that I've wrestled with over the years myself is, why in the world would tongues be a part of the sign gift that God would give to the early church at the outset of its ministry? And it doesn't require a long answer. It's just an observational answer. I think one of the reasons why tongues in Acts uh, and also as uh, described in 1 Corinthians are the sign, is a sign gift, and Paul specifically describes it as a sign gift for unbelievers in 1 Corinthians 14, is simply because one of the judgments of God upon fallen, sinful human people took place at the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel, the people of God got it in their mind, or the people got it in their mind that they could build a tower to God, tower to heaven, and God confused the languages. And so what happened when God restored or restored the hearing of languages at Pentecost, is it's God's restoration after Babel's judgment. It's God undoing what he did to make the gospel clear to the nations. And so there's an aspect of that that is kind of an affirmation of what God is doing in the world by spreading the gospel. 
You see that fulfilled in Revelation 5 when people of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language will be present in the heavenly worship service, that heavenly scene there. Uh, And so one of the reasons why we send missionaries, one of the reasons why we pray for missionaries, one of the reasons why we are praying for an unreached people group uh, weekly at our church, a different one every month, is because we believe that God wants to fulfill the promise that all nations will come to know Him, all people groups will come to know Him. It's evidenced in Revelation 5, it's testified in the book of Acts, and the speaking in tongues sign gift, the hearing in tongues gift at Pentecost reveals that God wants to save people who don't look like us, sound like us, or talk like us. And so one of our responsibilities as Christians is not just to see the controversial part of it, the part, okay, how do we, how do, what do we do with this? But there might be a bigger theological re, you know, thing going on, and I think there is, at least with tongues, that God, one of God's intentions there is to undo the judgment he did at Babel, spreading the good news of the gospel. So uh, we'll pick up. Now, with a, a discussion on the the uh, on spiritual gifts, ordinary spiritual gifts. So, I have a couple of things for you, or at least a couple of things to make available to you. The spiritual gifts texts in the New Testament are found in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. I'm not going to read all those for us tonight, but in each of those sections, there's a list of gifts. They're not the same list. There are some overlapping gifts. There are some that don't overlap, some in one place and not in another. So the normal spiritual gifts are things like leadership, shepherding, mercy, hospitality, evangelism, prophecy. There are a variety of those kind of gifts. And so let me try to answer a few, uh, one, one major question. How do we discover what our spiritual gifts are? I made a case two or three weeks ago. Every believer who has the Holy Spirit has been gifted by the Holy Spirit to do something in the life of the church to build up the body of Christ. So if you're here and you're saved, you've got a gift. If you're here and you're saved and you've got a gift, then you need to use that gift somehow, some way, to glorify Christ and build up the body of, uh, body of Christ, build up the church. So how do you discover your spiritual gifts? Let me give you four answers to that. We'll walk through these rather quickly as we move on to the life of, the, uh, of Christ and, and a spirit-filled life. Number one, prayer and discernment. How do you know how you're gifted? Well, folks, if you have the Holy Spirit, He can guide you and lead you and give you discernment. Okay? He absolutely can. The Holy Spirit can prompt you. The Holy Spirit can encourage you to, to use a gift. And so the closer you walk with the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about how we do that uh, here in, in tonight's lesson, the closer we walk with the Holy Spirit, the easier it is or the easier it will be for us to discover what our spiritual gift is. So I would tell you the very first thing that you need to do to say, okay, how am I gifted? Pray about it and discern your talents and your gifts and your abilities. And one way to do that would be reading those texts together. You just go through the New Testament, take the five minutes or so it'll take to find those four passages of Scripture and prayerfully discern, do you have one or more of those gifts? It's likely that every Christian has a combination of one or more of those gifts to serve in the life of the church. Okay, here's uh, number two. Ask others. Ask a spouse, a spiritually discerning spouse. Hey, where 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 do you see that God might have gifted me? 
or a mom or a dad, or a son or a daughter, or a Sunday school class member, a, a pastor, a teacher. Ask someone that you trust, hey, does it, does it seem like maybe I might have this gift and be able to use it in the life of the church? And I wouldn't necessarily ask it as an open-ended question. What spiritual gift do you think I have? I would spend some time discerning the list and praying through the list. And maybe if you discern that you have one or more of those gifts, that's when I would go to that discerning other person in the life of the church and say, does it, does it seem to you I might have this gift and would you pray for me about how I might use this gift if I do have this gift? Um, asking others is always, always helpful. You know, I, I wondered when I was a teenager if I might have the gift of music. And then my sister informed me that I could not sing on key. She was so gracious. She was actually really mean about that. I probably deserved that. I was probably mean to her as well. And over the years, I've discovered that's not a gift I have. I will not edify you at all by my you hearing my singing. If, if you hear my singing as a part of the congregation and we're all singing together, you can't tell if I'm off key or not. But uh, if you put me on a platform, that's not my gift. So why do we ask others? Well, we might be off base. Okay, it's possible. I, lovingly, lovingly, we've had some guys go to Bible college, said they were called to preach and gifted to preach. And Vince, they weren't gifted to preach. And Charles Spurgeon, when he, when he was training pastors back in the day, and they would come to him and say they've been called to preach, and he'd listen to them preach. If they couldn't preach, he'd tell them they couldn't preach. He'd say, you, you messed up. You misunderstood something. Uh, and and there's, a, there's something about preaching that is a calling and something about it that's a gifting. It, it's, it's not just for somebody who says, I want to be in front of a microphone or in front of a platform. There has to be a gifting for that. It, believe me, you wouldn't want to do it if you weren't called to do it. Right, Vince? Right? I mean, my dad's, yeah. Anyway, so ask others. Get some discernment. Here's a, a third thing you can do. Take a spiritual gift inventory. Notice I put that third, not first. Uh, it, it's helpful. Spiritual gifts inventories are helpful. If you go to our website and go under the serve tab, uh, there is a link to a spiritual gifts inventory that Lifeway put together years ago. It's about a five-page uh, document. It'll ask you about 80 to 100 questions, and then you score yourself, score your answers, and you're, asking, you're answering those questions honestly. It provides a guide, a framework. The reason I would do that third is because if you get a sense for how you might be gifted, and then you ask someone discerning in your life, and then you take the spiritual gift inventory, and the gift inventory affirms... What someone else has said and affirms what, you're, what the Holy Spirit's telling you in your life, well, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, I might be gifted in mercy, or I might be gifted specifically or uniquely in hospitality or in teaching or in evangelism. And, and so don't do that first, but let me encourage you to do that third. And then finally, let me just say this, whether you know your gift or not, serve. And even if you don't know your gift, even if you say, I'm not doing all that hard work, I'm not going to pray and discern my gift, and I'm not going to ask somebody else what they think my gift is, and I'm not going to take a spiritual gifts inventory because I quit taking tests when I graduated high school. If that's you, okay. Serve till you find a sweet spot. Okay? 
The first thing you do doesn't have to be the last thing you do in the life of the church. Some people have this mindset that if I start doing something, man, I'll never be able to get out of it. Well, some churches, that's true. That's not true here. If you're not good at it and don't want to do it, we're not going to ask you to keep doing it. But if you can find something, try the nursery, and the nursery's great. And those babies love anybody to hold them. Right, Crystal? And baby, they, they, it, it's hard to mess that up. Uh, well, maybe it's not, actually. Um, anyway, I'll stop, I'll stop there. Find, serve until you find where you're gifted and where you're, you're, you're hitting your sweet spot. There are some in here that are just fantastic at greeting. You know, they put a smile on your face. I think of Scott Caudle. Nobody does a better job greeting people than Scott. He's always smiling on his face, opening the door. He's happy to be here, and you know he's happy to be here. And so you're happy because you know he's happy that you're here. Not everybody has that gift of a morning. Some people need a few cups of coffee before a smile comes out on their face. Okay, if, the, if that's you, then let, let's find a place that might not be in front of everybody. So you can get your, you know, closet introvert settled, all that taken care of. Uh, maybe greeting's not your thing, but there are other areas to serve. Find a place to serve. I, I think I've given my spill enough. I'm, I'm not trying to, not trying to hold, make you feel guilty, but find a place to serve. We've been gifted. Okay, let me, let me talk about something that is tremendously important, and we could probably spend weeks on this. And I promise you we'll come back to this as we work through the doctrine of sanctification under salvation. It's the life of Christ in the Christian, or the life of Christ in the Christian is the Spirit-led life. Meaning that everything we do from, from conversion is a product of what the Holy Spirit does in us. But the life of being a sanctified follower of Christ, being transformed by God into the image of Jesus, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no part of our Christian life that we live distinct from the Holy Spirit's activity in our life. And so it is tremendously important that we as Christians understand, in order to be like Christ, in order to walk with Christ, I can't do that entirely in my own strength and ability. It's not, it's not in and of me to wake up one morning and say, I'm just going to be Christ-like. I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to be like Jesus. And I'm going to act like Jesus, and I'm going to talk like Jesus, and I'm going to think like Jesus, and I'm going to speak like Jesus. As if, as if kind of the self-help movement and self-development movement has embedded itself into Christianity, I'm just going to be like Christ today. Well, we can try that all we want until we meet the first person that's obnoxious and annoying and speaks back to us in a disrespectful way or until we get the first person cutting us off in traffic or until our kids are disrespectful. You name it, you, put the, you fill in the blank. If our effort is the single and sole motivating factor in us being like Jesus, we're going to fall short over and over and over again. Our effort is part of it, part of the equation in sanctification, but we still need the work of God in us, the Holy Spirit, to sanctify us and make us like Jesus. And so every part of our Christian life moving forward from conversion to glorification, the Holy Spirit is at work. And that, in the next 30 minutes or so, I want to talk about what that looks like using one passage of Scripture, and that's Galatians 5, uh, and we'll begin reading in verse 16. Paul says this, But I say... 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Now, when he uses that phrase, walk by the Spirit, I think very simply that's a very similar phrase, maybe not exact, but very similar in its application to being filled with the Spirit. We talked a few weeks ago about being baptized in the Spirit. Baptism in the Spirit happens at salvation. When you become a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You get the Holy Spirit once. You don't have to get the Holy Spirit over and over again as a Christian. He's with you. He never leaves you. That's why Jesus can say, I will never leave you. Lo, I'm with you always. The Spirit of Jesus is with every follower of Jesus. Wherever you are, wherever I am, the Holy Spirit is with us wherever we are. We always have the Holy Spirit. But to be filled with the Spirit is the same concept as walking in the Spirit, meaning that we're in tune with what God wants of us in our demeanor, actions, attitudes, confession, dealing with our sins. We're in tune with the Spirit regularly. That's what walking in the Spirit is. And he contrasts it here, walking in the Spirit with walking in the flesh. So note the contrast between the works of the flesh and walking in the Spirit. That's the first bullet point down there, walking in the Spirit. Note the contrast. So look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So very simply, in an observation point or in a overarching statement, Paul says, the desires of the flesh are at odds with the spirit, the desires of the spirit are at odds with the flesh. And when we think of the desires of the flesh or the lust of the flesh, notice what he says, but uh, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. And sometimes when we think of the works of the flesh, that, that terminology has come to mean lustfulness or some kind of sexual immorality. That's certainly present But when Paul uses that phrase, he has much more in mind than merely sexual immorality or sexual perversions. He's talking about the works of the flesh. He has a much broader framework in mind. He's basically saying anything that we do as as humans that is in discord with what God's Word teaches, those are works of the flesh. Anything that we have a natural sinful bent to do, he's going to give a whole list of them. We'll walk through them. That's the works of the flesh. So these works of the flesh are the things that we're to confess, we're to repent of, we're to avoid. The works of the Spirit are different. We'll see what those are in a moment. So what are the works of the flesh? Notice what he says. The works of the flesh are evident. And he gives four different categories or realms for the works of the flesh. The first realm is the realm of sexuality or sexual immorality, and that is uh, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The second realm is the realm of religion or idolatry. That would be verse 20, idolatry and sorcery. The next realm would be the realm of just kind of basic living, uh, the, the re- society, relational interactions. You can see that in the next sec- section, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. So just note this, and we'll come back to this and walk through this list in a moment, but just note this, he's listed three things that relate to sexual immorality, two things that relate to religion, but eight things that relate to relationships, how we interact with one another. And then he goes, and the fourth area is the area of drink or the area of control, self-control, and that would be drunkenness or orgies. And then, as if he didn't cover enough, he said, and things like these. 
Paul says, these are the works of the flesh. So sexual immorality is, it would be uh, fornication and anything that would include any sexual immorality outside the marriage relationship. Uh, impurity is anything looking at that's impure. So pornography would be included in that. Sensuality are things that are seductive, things that draw our attention to the immoral. So all of those things, we realize, okay, that's out of bounds. That's not who we ought to be as Christians. Things that attract me in a sexual or sinful way outside of my marriage relationship, obviously they're wrong, so let's put those aside. Those are the works of the flesh. Look what else are the works of the flesh. Idolatry. Some some church members are guilty of being idol worshipers. They're guilty of putting something in front of God. Idolatry, sorcery, is seeking out some kind of power from some kind of magical experience. That was a major issue in the, in the Greco-Roman world. That was a part of the religious expression of the day. And maybe we're not tempted to that so much, but there are temptations toward that in our society and culture to play around with magic and with sorcery and with uh, voodoo-type things. And what Paul says is those are works of the flesh. Those are things we're trying to control the spirits or the demonic through, through power. And, and, and not our place. We're to avoid that. It's works of the flesh. And then he really meddles, okay? It, it, I mean, to be quite honest with you, if he had stopped there, a lot of us would say, he didn't catch me. But both, look at what he says. Then he says, enmity. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger. I wish you wouldn't have said that one. I've got two sons, and I've been watching Tar Heel basketball this, this, this fall and winter. Fits of anger. Y'all don't, don't, don't laugh at me too much. Rivalries. Dissensions, dissensions, disagreements, like intentional disagreements where, like, I'm not going to get along because I want my way. If I don't get my way, I'm going to be mad at you. And if that, that's, that's a work of the flesh. It's not what God desires. Divisions. Envy. You have this. I want that. And I want it. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be mad until I get that. So that's, that's a pretty harsh list. Notice what Paul says about this list. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The works of the flesh are not to be the things that evidence the life of Christians. It's not. He talked about rivalries. He's talking about things like seeking after promotion. Like, like longing for something that is not yours. J. Oswald Sanders, in a, in a quote that, that I shared with our uh, uh, spiritual leadership uh, training this past Sunday night in his book, Spiritual Leadership, put it this way. He said, the true spiritual leader will never campaign for promotion. I'm just going just gonna to observe. I've been around Baptist life and Christian life my, for, for 20-some years. And I've seen lots of people campaign for position and for promotion. I've seen pastors kind of try to work their way into the graces of someone who can give them a better place. And, I, I, you know, social media is that. What does social media do? We make ourselves look better than we really are. 
by talking like we're smarter than we really are. It's not hard to talk, talk smart in 140 characters. It's also not hard to talk dumb in 140 characters, but that's, that's beside the point. But what does that do? We put out a face who we want other people to see that we are rather than show ourselves to be honest and show ourselves to be true. I mean, rivalries, dissensions, I mean, those are works of the flesh. That's not what God pleases God. And more than that, I mean, Paul said this, the people who do these things are not the people who are going to heaven. So what he's saying is that we as Christians are not to be regularly identified with these characteristics. He's not saying, he's not saying that if you find yourself guilty of one of these, that you automatically have lost your salvation. What he's saying is, you will not be able to live in this category of disobedience and walk in the Spirit at the same time. And if you, you even listen to the Spirit for a moment, the Spirit's going to show you that, hey, you, you, you've, you've promoted rivalry or dissension. You, you've argued in a way that is ungodly and not helpful. I mean, I mean, some of you know that to be true in your home life. I mean, I... If, if my wife just agreed with me all the time, we'd never argue. She'd just realize that I was right all the time. We'd be in a great place, right? That's not what happens. She thinks I'm wrong sometimes, and I think she's wrong sometimes. And sometimes we don't think we're wrong nicely, okay? And you know what I have to do? I have to go back, and I have to apologize and say, listen, I, I spoke in a way that wasn't right. I I, I, I was too quick to speak, and she does the same thing. Why? Because if you try to in, end your night in prayer and, and, and turning your heart and your, your sleep over to God and you're at odds with that person that you're sleeping next to, that's a really hard place to be in. So, so what he's saying is that the Christian can't be regularly identified with these works of the flesh because that's not who we are anymore. We've been changed. We've been given the Holy Spirit. That's not who we're to be. Then he goes on, but the fruit of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit. Observe that this list is the fruit, not the fruits of the Spirit, fruit singular. So when the Holy Spirit works in your life, he's not trying to get you to work on love today and joy tomorrow and peace the next day. This, this is not a, you can't, you can't separate a fruit from a fruit in this category. Fruit, singular. So what is the Holy Spirit doing in our lives? He is building in our lives love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He is building all of these characteristics in our lives as Christ followers. That's what he's doing. That's his, his goal is to make us like that. Why this list? Well, there are lots of reasons. We're going to walk through the different characteristics here in just a moment. But why this list? This is Jesus. What the Spirit is trying to do is take you and take me in our human nature and sinfulness and make us look more like Christ. By the way, that's why God left you on planet Earth after he saved you. Romans eight twenty nine says, 
that the purpose for which God saved us, why he predestined us to salvation, terminology specifically this, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. The whole purpose of God looking down eons in front of the, the thousands of years in front of the cross and looking into your situation and saying, I want to save you, Eddie. I want to save you, Conrad. I want to save you, Chris. He doesn't just want to take us to heaven. Heaven is the glorious benefit of salvation. What he wants to do is make us like Jesus. Because if he can take Eddie and Conrad and Chris and make us more look more like Jesus, he can show the world what he can do with sinful, wicked people, and show off His grace and His mercy and His, uh, His glorious redeeming work. That's why He leaves us behind, to make us more like Jesus. So the work of the Spirit, the Spirit's work in our lives is to bear this fruit in our lives day by day, week by week, moment by moment. That's what He wants to do. So He wants to build this fruit in our lives. The fruit is evidenced, watch this, and applied relationally. Now, John Stott, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, he, he kind of put each of these nine, the nine fruits, the fruit, these nine characteristics, in three different triads. And he put them together, love, joy, peace, our relationship with God. And then he put um, patience, kindness, and goodness, our relationships with people. And then he put gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, our relationships internally with our own, our own behavior. That's probably not an unhelpful way to look at the fruit of the Spirit, but, but I think that's a tad bit arbitrary. What I mean by that is all of the fruit, each characteristic of the fruit, has to be lived out, not just internally. It's not just that I can go to the Lord in my quiet time and say, God, you know, I, I, I really want to live in love with you and in love with other people like I ought to. And talk to God about it in my quiet time. And then discern in my quiet time, in my time with God, that, that I, am, I, am, I am improving in that area. Now, love, agape love, is selfless love. It has to be exhibited relationally. has to be. It can't just be some kind of internal compass or internal spiritual marker. Joy. It's relational. It's between God and us and out. Outward for sure, but it's expressed relationally. Peace with God and with other people is expressed relationally. So, so let me walk through a few of these and specific characteristics. And we won't walk through all of them. We don't have time to give specific kind of discussion of all of them. But let me walk through a few that I think are important. They've been poignant for me recently. And so I, I think they may be helpful for you. In a book entitled Character Matters, Aaron Minikoff puts it this way, talking about love. And he's specifically talking about love from the responsibility of the, the pastor or the preacher. He, he's saying that character matters, and his whole book is about the pastor, the elders, the leaders of the church exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in their ministry. So he writes this, Love must never be pitted against the truth. The, tr the two are sweet friends. A loving pastor who abandons sound doctrine doesn't really love at all. He's like a doctor who greets his dying patient with a compassionate smile, but withholds the very medicine that could save his life. Truth, and specifically the truth of the gospel, is our only hope of eternal life. The Bible never makes love an enemy of the truth. Their comrade in arms to feed Christ's sheep is to explain Christian doctrine to Christ's church. This kind of teaching is birthed out of love for Christ. 
Love and truth must not be separated. Shepherds teach the truth of God's Word from hearts captured by God's love. I'm talking about that with pastors. But I'll tell you this, even if I teach sound doctrine, teach doctrine well, Paul's terminology, if I speak with tongues and men and of angels and have not love, I'm like a sounding gong and a noisy cymbal. Folks, love has to be expressed relationally. And God wants to make us more like Christ by giving us love. I know we know that. And the great commandment is to love God and then love our neighbor as ourselves. The second commandment is, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. We know that. Talk a lot about that. Let me talk about something we don't talk about a lot. How about the second characteristic in the fruit of the Spirit? Joy. Do you know how many joyless Christians I've met over the years? I've met a lot. A lot of Christians who are just kind of floating down the stream of Christian life. You couldn't find a smile on their face. Anywhere, anytime. Joy. In a wonderful book that I, 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 a friend of mine gave to me years ago, The Preacher's Catechism by Lewis, Lewis Allen, he writes this, Joy, like nothing else, shows whether we really believe the gospel. Joy is gospel authenticity. Aaron Minikoff put it like this way. He said, optimism can be faked. Joy cannot. What's joy? Uh, the Westminster Catechism puts it this way, that at the chief end of man, our chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. C.S. Lewis described it this way. I don't have the quote exactly in front of me, but he said, our problem is not that we're satisfied with too much, it's that we're satisfied with too little. All the shiny things that we like and we think, they, they, the shiny things that we buy they, that were new, they're not new anymore. The, the people that we, that, that we think, oh, if I just have that, that situation, that job, that circumstance, that money, that, that marriage, that child, those are all wonderful. They're, they're wonderful things. They can be incredibly wonderful things, but eventually... Eventually, there's conflict that enters into those relationships. And if we're waiting on our joy to derive from those circumstances, we're going to be waiting a long time because, you know, people are going to fail you and they're going to create difficulty and dissension in your life. Where does joy come from? It comes from the fact, listen, that God delights in you because he delights in Jesus. Do you realize that? Do you realize that God wants to spend time with you just as you are? No preconditions, nothing else you have to do to enter the presence of God. Just come to God through Jesus. And God is pleased with you. He is. Because when He sees you, do you realize he doesn't see, I mean, he knows. He knows our sins and our flaws. I don't mean that. But he doesn't see us through the lens of our imperfection. Because if he did, he'd never accept us. He sees us through the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might not experience the righteousness of God, become the righteousness of God. When God sees you, Christian, follower of Jesus, he sees Jesus, so he delights in you. 
That's the way we ought to express our Christian faith day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, Sunday by Sunday, song by song, sermon by sermon, lesson by lesson, class by class, interaction by interaction. We ought to express joy because our God delights in us. And there's nothing more wonderful than us deriving joy from delighting in God. God is not just to be glorified. He's not just like a a heavenly Lord that we have to bow down before Him in order for Him to experience what He needs. God doesn't need us. We'll do that, believe me. But it's not because God needs it. It's because God's worthy of it. But we're to enjoy Him. Everything, Everything that gives us joy, God thought up. You do realize that, right? He thought it up. And he thought it up better than we could ever imagine it. In the garden, it was absolutely perfect. So Christian, joy, have joy, live in joy. Sorry, we're never going to finish if I, if I go at this pace. So love, joy. How about this one? Peace. Peace with God, peace with people. Some of you have peace with God. Amen. But you don't have peace with people. There's somebody you're at odds with. You know what that does? That creates a tension and a burden in your life. And, and that needs to get fixed. And, and it's for God to fix. You can't always fix those things. For your part, you can. You can forgive. And for your part, you can interact peacefully. But you can't always fix that with everybody else. But God wants to build peace in our lives. We of all people. I, I am going to meddle for a second, okay? I don't like what's going on in our country. Okay? I, I think there's a lot of wickedness. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of things that are vile and that are destructive. But there are a lot of people in our country that go by the name of Christian who all they want to do is fight and yell and fuss and gripe and complain and get on social media and blast. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. That's not what Jesus did when he walked planet Earth. If he had wanted to start a political revolution against Rome, he could have developed a I mean, he had one of those guys on his, on his, uh, as a disciple, Simon the Zealot. He could have started his own war. He could have overthrown Rome. That wasn't his agenda. I mean, I, I don't like the stuff that's going on in our world either. But I'm going to tell you something. that The persons around us, the people around us that need Jesus, they're not going to be changed by our vitriol and our anger on social media. That's not going to solve our country's issues and problems. Christians, we ought to be people that are full of peace and exhibit that. Because I'm going to tell you, there are some folks in our world that that's all they're longing for. They want peace. They don't have it. And they can only have it through Jesus. And if all they see in us is anger and mad and blame the government and blame, and there's a lot to blame, believe me. I, I, I get as frustrated as you do. But if we exhibit it always in this antagonistic, battle-oriented sense against the people who need Jesus, we're, we're not going to win people by our winsomeness. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not, but let me move on. Patience. Love, joy, peace, patience. And the next three are absolutely relational, even, even if the others aren't as, as patient. Man, life would be good if it weren't for all the people, right? I mean, we could say that about Walmart. We could say that about church. We could say that about restaurants. We could say that about our places of business. Patience. You know why God puts some people in your life? To teach you patience. I swear that's why he gave parents kids. And then he gave grandkids to grandparents as a reward for them being parents. Or something like that. Patience. 
Who's more patient than God? I mean, 3,000 3, years of biblical history, and God's still inviting people to know Jesus just the same way he did 2,000 years ago. He hadn't come back and wiped all the wickedness off planet Earth in anger and in wrath. Why? Because he wants your neighbor to come to know Jesus. He wants your daughter and your son to come to know Jesus. He wants your grandchildren to come to know Jesus. God is patient. And guess what that means? If we're really patient, we can, if we really trust God, we can be patient. Now, some of us need some more work on that than others. I'm one of those. I'm impatient. When I tell my kids I want something done, it's not to be done in a minute. Now. Right? Some of you are that way too. But patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's what God wants to bear in our lives. How about kindness? Kindness. It's, it, it's caring about others. Not being nice. There's a difference between being nice and being kind. Uh, so let me read this quote. This also, I believe, comes from Aaron Menikoff. He says, Kindness is the presence of compassion and generosity toward others. The kind person is helpful, useful, and lovingly working for the well-being of others. If goodness is the light of God shining within the human heart, kindness is the light of God shining from the human heart. Kindness exists for the benefit of others. In our digital age, people connect on the Internet and social media, and they remind you of your friend's birthdays. It's easy to like someone's birthday picture or send a quick note to let her know that you remembered. That's nice. But let's not confuse niceness with kindness. Kindness has feet and hands. Kindness is getting into the car, going to the restaurant, waiting on your friend to arrive so you can surprise her with a rousing happy birthday. Kindness is generous and cheerfully pays the price of an evening out with a friend. Kindness is more than remembering. Kindness is doing. Kindness is active. That's what God wants in our lives. He doesn't just want us to be nice to people. We can do that. Most Christians ought to be nice. But kindness goes further than niceness. Uh, in the book that many of you ladies are reading, Adorned by Nancy Wolgamuth, she puts it this way, talking about kindness. Paul intended kindness, and, and she's writing it from a woman's perspective, but this, this quote fits for men and women too. She writes, that's because a woman's spirit and tone has the ability to determine the climate around her, whether at home, at work, at the gym, or at church. And this makes kindness indispensable in our relationships with others and for our gospel witness around the world. That, that's as true of men as it is as women. How you carry yourself when you walk in the door at your house or walk in your place of business, if it's not kind, it shows. And if it's kind, it shows. And what God wants to do through the Holy Spirit is build kindness into our lives day by day. Uh, goodness, that is reflecting the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God. Gentleness, that is it's just being, it's being compassionate. It's being someone that we're not going to hurt another person. That's what gentleness is. It's, it's being able to interact in a way that is kind and careful. Faithfulness, it, it derives from the Greek word pistis. It carries with it the idea that we're going to take the faith that we had in Jesus at conversion, and we're not going to lose hold of that throughout the rest of our Christian experience, we're going to continue to believe. We're going to spend a good bit of time, at least three weeks in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, because of that. We need our faith not just at conversion, but day by day in Christian living. And then self-control. That's making sure we're managing, we're managing our behavior. You know, there, there is a, there's a, a, a point where the Christian can't, shouldn't say something or can't, shouldn't 
do something. And, and in our old nature, man, we're just going to bless somebody out. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna spew that curse word. We're going to let our anger get, get out of control. Well, the Christian's not supposed to be that way. And it's not to say that, that if we do that, we're automatically failing against God. The point is that if we're letting the Holy Spirit work in our lives, He's going to be working in all nine of these areas in our Christian experience. And He's going to be doing that relationally. Husbands, wives, children, people we interact with at businesses and at places where we serve. Let me give you three takeaways. Number one, celebrate celebrate the ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout our Christian journey. If you're a believer, you're a believer because the Holy Spirit drew you to God. Jesus said no one comes to the Father unless, God, unless the Father draws him. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. When you came to that process of conversion, that was the Holy Spirit working in your life. No one comes to God unless they're convicted of their sins. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin. No one comes to God unless they're made alive. They're regenerated. Jesus talked about that in John chapter 3. It's the Holy Spirit's job to regenerate and make alive. I mean, the Holy Spirit is present, leading us to salvation, present at conversion. And the Holy Spirit is entirely present throughout the entirety of our Christian experience. Filling with the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, being salvation, being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being made alive and right. All of these characteristics that God wants to do in our lives. So guess what, Christian? We need to celebrate the ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout our Christian journey. It might be a good idea in your prayer sometime today to just thank God for what His Holy Spirit's done in you already. You can go back and remember the day you were converted. Thank the Holy Spirit for being the one to convict you and bring you to salvation. Some of you could look back at your Christian journey. Say, well, I know I'm not where I ought to be. Because the pastor talked about all the, that, that fruit of the Spirit tonight. And I can see where I'm short in some areas. But thank God I'm not where I used to be. And you know who to credit for that? Don't, don't, don't. Put a sign on your back that says you're the, you're the credit for it. It's the Holy Spirit. Thank God for His work in your life. And, and throughout our Christian life, you know how we're getting to heaven? Holy Spirit's going to take us there. You realize that? The reason we can go to heaven is because He's the guarantee, the, the deposit. He's the down payment, First, uh, 2 Corinthians one twenty two. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. The reason we know we get to go to heaven is we have the Holy Spirit. He'll take us there. He's the seal. He's the one that affirms, like the, the, the seal in, the, in, the, in kingly days in the first century was what a king would put on a document and say, this is mine. And he would imprint, imprint the document with his seal, and nobody better open it except the person it was made for. Holy Spirit's our seal, meaning that we have God's stamp on our lives, so we get to go to heaven one day. We need to celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit. And I realize that, that as Baptists, sometimes talking about the Holy Spirit in light of some of the things we talked about the last few weeks makes us a little uncomfortable because of the speaking in tongues and those kind of things. I'm just going to tell you, the Holy Spirit has a whole lot more to do in our Christian living than just the supernatural or the perceived supernatural sign aspects of our Christian living. In very ordinary, very day-by-day, and truly still very supernatural works of the Holy Spirit, we just don't necessarily associate them with supernatural works. We need to celebrate. Uh, let me give you the next one. Be filled with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. By obeying Christ, reading the Word, praying regularly, and worshiping God through Christ. 
Being filled with the Spirit is a lot like revival. We long for the supernatural evidence of the experience. Nothing wrong with that. Folks, I, I would love for God's Spirit to fall upon Wilkesboro Baptist Church. I believe He can. I don't, I don't doubt that he, that he could. Pray that He does. Several of us, six or eight of us, every Wednesday afternoon at 4.30 are upstairs in room 253. And we're praying for our church, and we're praying for you, and we're praying for each other, and we're praying for revival. Believe absolutely God can do that. But note this, we must not neglect the ordinary means of walking in the Spirit and seeking the presence of God. The ordinary, day-by-day Christian experience is what God wants in a move, a supernatural move of revival. What does He want from us? He wants us to repent when we sin. He wants us to be humble before Him. And trust me, if you read God's Word and seek to walk in His Spirit, you're going to be humbled because you're going to come face-to-face with the fact of how far you fall short regularly. I do. Day by day, just this week, just today, in all the godly things I have an opportunity to do, to pray and share the gospel and study and prepare, I still find myself in sinful attitudes and actions, just like you do. And guess what I have to do? When I find myself there, I have to confess it and repent of it and come back to the Lord. That's what God wants. And, And what is the means for that happening in our lives? Reading His Word prayer, and worship. The best thing you can do, if you want revival in your life or somebody, or your, the life of our church, get in God's Word every day and pray every day. Do the normal, ordinary things of Christian living and trust, seek God's face. And if He falls in a supernatural, amazing, wonderful way, amen. And if He grows you to be more like Christ over the next 30 years of the life that you have left, and you wake up one day and someone says, man, you look a lot like Jesus. And guess what? God did the same work he would do in revival. He just did it over the course of days, years, weeks, and months. Finally, worship God in the Spirit. That's what Jesus said in John 4. Worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, I'm going to meddle again. If you can't joyfully worship among the people of God in song and in prayer and listening to His Word, you're not walking in the Spirit and you're not, you are absolutely not filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5 says that that being filled with the Spirit results in singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving. It does. I've told you this before. I'll do it again. Not this Sunday, but I'll do it next Sunday. I, I stand up front and I turn around and I look. I look to see who's there because I think we ought to attend church regularly. And I know sometimes you have to be gone. I get that. I've got to be gone this week. But I do look and see who's there. But I also look to see who's singing. I do. And, and forgive me, but occasionally I might judge somebody who's not. And then I have to pray as quick prayers. Like, I don't know what's going on. And God, you help them. But I'm going to tell you this, if you can come to church, church week after week and not sing, and not sing joyfully, it's a pretty good indication you're not walking with the Spirit. Now, you can fake it too. I mean, I, I faked it singing. There are times you can sing, you can put a smile on your face, and there's not anything going on inside spiritually. But I'll tell you this, if you start smiling and you start singing and you start believing the words, I'm going to tell you something, there's something that happens. There's an internal transformation. Do you know why? That's what God made us for. 
made us for worship. He made us for worship in the Spirit. You want to walk with the Spirit? Come to church Sunday, and if the songs are your cup of tea, sing. And if the songs aren't your cup of tea, sing. Praise God. If there's truth in the song, sing. If you don't know it, try. Let me try. We're trying to like show the songs in here on Wednesday nights to just kind of get a framework of some of the things we're going to be singing. Sing. I'm, I'm going I'm to make one more kind of, kind of meddled, meddled in, emphasis, and I know I'm late. They're going to be mad at me downstairs, but, but here goes. Easter Sunday, okay? Last year, we had about 600 folks worship with us on Easter Sunday. Not all of those folks are here with us every week. You know that, I know that. There are a lot of folks that need Jesus. So I'm going to tell you what needs to happen on Easter Sunday. When we sing, you need to sing like Easter happened that day. You know why? Because if, I mean, I can preach, and I'm going to preach the truth. I try to do that week after week. And, and, and I believe God's going to be at work. I believe there are people who need Jesus that are going to hear the gospel. I'm going to tell you one of the most inviting things that could ever take place in the life of a lost person is to hear the body of Christ sing believingly and sing joyfully the truths of the gospel. And if they turn around and they listen, man, all these folks, they really believe what they're singing. And we're going to try to sing as much familiar as we can for that reason. Plan. Some of you are like, man, I'm not sure I can do that. Practice from now to Easter. Just practice. Do your best on Sunday mornings from now to Easter. Even even if you can't sing well, like me, you just sing. I sing three Sundays, three three times a Sunday. And there are sometimes I catch myself at eleven o'clock thinking I got to sing a little less loud because I got to I got to have my voice for the next thirty minutes. But, but it's because of the overflow of what God's doing. So here's what I want you to do. Practice and prepare for Easter and be ready to sing on Easter. Because you never know who that person is sitting down the aisle next to you who doesn't know Jesus. You never know who that son or daughter is that's on the fence. And, and it may not be the exact thing that pushes them over the top. But I promise you, if they think we believe what we're singing and we're joyful, that has an attractive glory-filled result. The Holy Spirit works through that. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 